Hey everyone, this is Joseph Anderson here with Keeping Up With Joe, and today we are going to be interviewing Ryan Campbell, and probably just said that wrong, it's probably Ryan Campbell, and he is an Aussie guy who currently lives in Tennessee, and he has a pretty amazing story, and I'm going to let him tell you that story because he can probably tell it better than me. Anywho, glad you're joining us here today. It's season two of Keeping Up With Joe. And we have a lot of exciting episodes ahead of us, so make sure you stay tuned. Yeah, yeah, sure, man. So just tell me a bit about, like, I guess what I'm really interested in, first of all, I'm interested in a lot of things about you. But starting with this idea of you, you had a, a speaking business in Australia, correct? First? Yes, I did. Yes. And then, so how did that look like? Did you build that pretty big and then you decided to move here? Was there just more opportunity here? How'd that look? Oh man, I had the most relaxed uh, speaking business on the planet. Um, <laughs> I say I'm a typical Aussie dude. Any more laid back, I'll be lying down. And um, <laughs> so I had finished the round the world flight. I'd become the youngest person, the first teenager in history to have ever done that. And uh, I'd published a book called Porn to Fly. Um, and man, I was living the high life. Uh, a normal Aussie kid. Uh, we pulled together this crazy big adventure. We raised a quarter million dollars on a laptop computer over two years, planned, trained, fundraised, um, prepared as a pilot, uh, rented an airplane and uh, set off for 70 days uh, around the world, you know, to, in an attempt to break that record. Once that had come to an end, uh, life was good. All those good things happened. I met the Royals and I was named one of Australia's 50 greatest explorers. All these funky things that a normal Aussie kid never thought he would ever experience. One of those things was actually being asked to speak. Lots of people were kind of coming out and saying, hey, would you, you know, come to our aero club or come to our large organization, you know, and, and I spoke uh, everywhere from uh, our largest multinational uh, telecommunications company uh, through to the Royal Australian Air Force all the way through to, you know, small school groups. And I loved it, but I just kind of rocked up, told my story. I uh, showed some photos, uh, talked to people uh, in the audience uh, around the world in a way and uh, shared what that was like. So definitely some kind of takeaways and pointers in there, uh, a bit of an inspirational story for others to see kind of what they could do. But I did not have a website. I did not have a speaking reel. I had nothing. I had a laptop and my voice box. And um, it was kind of a fun way to kind of get into it. Uh, but my passion was flying and... Uh, really that's where my interest lay and that's where my effort went was into my flying. Uh, the decision to come here and, and, and speak in the US, completely different beast, uh, massive, big uh, undertaking to build this business and, and all the things we need uh, to support it. So tell me, what are the main differences you've noticed so far between uh, Australia and America? Um, I, I always say, I mean, again, just a normal Aussie kid, you know, we don't really subscribe to the, uh, stand up and high five the guy next to you and tell him he has a great uh, eye structure. You know, like that's just not that motivational, real hardcore participation uh, style approach really isn't an Australian way to do things. It obviously works here. Uh, it's very popular, but that's not me. So uh, what I love more than anything in the world is a campfire on a starry night. And uh, <laughs> one of my most favorite things in the whole wide world is a good story. So uh, we deliver a three-step checklist of navigating change. So I help uh, develop 
change and challenge ready uh, mindsets into both individuals and organizations. That's my job. Uh, we do that through a three-step checklist of gratitude, confidence, and resilience and share stories from not only breaking that world record, but surviving a plane crash and uh, being diagnosed with paraplegic. Uh, that journey of both learning to walk, but also learning to fly again. So uh, we take those stories and we uh, use those to uh, reel people in and, and make them realize just what you know, a mindset toolbox full of tools and a three-step checklist can do for them. So when you say you're talking about change, a checklist for change, what kind of change are we talking about? Any change. And, and this is, uh, you know, a lot of people look at my story and they think, well, this only relates to, you know, adventures of the, you know, the greatest proportions or adversity uh, that is unbelievably, you know, terrifying. But it's not that at all. At the end of the day, mate, you know, we, we live uh, a life uh, that has adversity. We've all experienced it and we all will. Uh, change and challenges, crisis, all of that stuff. It's part of life. And anyone who tells you that it's just going to be a rosy ride, uh, they're hiding under their covers and they probably should come out and uh, face reality. Life sucks sometimes. And in order to be able to navigate those challenges and get where we want to be, you know, we all have goals and dreams and aspirations. We all have uh, things we want to do and places we want to uh, see and, you know, feelings we want to uh, experience to get to tick those boxes, we have to have a toolkit full of tools to help us get through the rough days because that's just part of the journey. So uh, we have a three-step checklist where uh, we want to see people apply to every problem, whether you're uh, 10 years old and uh, you just uh, broke up with your first girlfriend at school or boyfriend <laughs> at school or where, whether you're uh, you know, 70 years old and you're a CEO you know, heading up a $3 billion merger. It doesn't matter. Crisis and adversity are, you know, are common uh, throughout uh, the feelings that you experience uh, as are the tools that you can use to combat and work through it and navigate around it, as I would say. So what's, what, is, what do you define as crisis, I guess? That really, I don't think is definable, which is probably not the answer you want. But, you know, I remember uh, lying in hospital uh, in a spinal rehabilitation board, no movement or feeling from my waist down. I had five breaks in my back a spinal cord injury, I had uh, shattered facial bones, shattered ankle and leg bones. I was a mess. And uh, they lifted me up the first time they ever got me out of that bed. Uh, they placed me in a wheelchair and took me down to a rehabilitation gym. And uh, they laid me out on a bed and they said, all right, you know, we're going to do some exercise. They introduced me to my physical uh, rehabilitation uh, guru, as I called her. And she uh, told me that my challenge was to roll over. That was the challenge for the day. I was halfway through rolling over. Uh, this is one of my favorite stories that I share in the keynotes. Uh, I was halfway through rolling over and the pain was just too much to, to move. So I just locked up. I laid there on my side. I looked down through a hole created by my twisted up right arm. I looked under my elbow and what I saw uh, changed my life. It was a guy called Ben. Uh, he was in his early 30s. He'd slipped over mopping a floor and hit his head. Uh, broken his neck. He was a quadriplegic from the chest down, no movement, no feeling. And uh, in that moment, I looked at Ben, I saw him looking at me and uh, here I was feeling sorry for myself, sad about you know what had happened to me, sad about the outcome of the accident, sad about the fact I couldn't fly, let alone walk or go to the bathroom like a normal human. You know, here I was hating life. However, I realized in that one moment that Ben, just through the way he was looking at me, I realized that he would give anything he would give anything just for one chance at rolling over. And in that one moment, I just, I felt terrible. And Ben showed me uh, 
uh, perspective. He showed me uh, what I had instead of uh, me focusing on what I'd lost. He showed me that every challenge that we come up against an opportunity to quit, obviously, uh, but every challenge we come up against is also an opportunity to adapt. And uh, he made me realize, honestly, mate, that I was lucky to be a paraplegic. That's what led that moment in time led uh, to that first step in a three-step checklist that led to gratitude. It led to me uh, now telling everyone that I cross paths with to, hey, like, before you start to navigate whatever you're up against, find something to be thankful for. It will change your entire mindset throughout this whole journey that you're about to embark on. And uh, you might not think that there's something to be thankful for. You might say, well, there's just nothing in this that I want to be uh, you know, showing gratitude towards. But trust me, there's always something. Uh, so when you say... Uh, what defines crisis? It's anything that makes us feel anything other than happy and excited and content. It's all of these feelings of mediocrity or that's a big word. It's probably the biggest word I've used all day uh, <laughs> or any word of you know, negativity or, you know, upset. That's anything that just, you know, doesn't go our way. You know, we can apply this checklist to that, uh, put ourselves in a better mindset, uh, you know, ready to take on a challenge, get around it and get back on track and, resume at normal programming. Yeah, that's interesting because I think about, I mean, so I got some weird light. I, I didn't expect the sun to come out because it's been, <laughs> it's been cloudy all day, which I'm not really used to in California. Let me see if I can just pull this up real quick. That might actually help a little bit. I got these blinds here. That's a little better. Um, cool. Anywho, <clears throat> so, because I think about, like, I've not had anything as gnarly as what you've been through with the plane crash happened to me. But I can't think of a lot of times when I've gone through change. And that's just a really interesting, that's just a really interesting thing to me that you're so focused on change because I can think of a lot of times I've gone through change and just the change itself was hard for me. You know what I mean? hundred percent. I think, you know, there's uh, some amazing statistics out there of people uh, avoiding change, you know, saying, oh no, we just like to stay where we are in our comfort zones. If we could, that's what we choose for the rest of our lives. But if you take a look at yourself as a baby, uh, a photo of yourself, and then you have a look at yourself in the mirror now, mate, all you've done is change. Yeah, like oh yeah. That is just every single day we wake up, we're just in this continual process of change. And, you know, whether it's work or whether it's our personal life at home or whether it's physically or whether it's mentally, you know, if we don't have, I mean, change should be something we embrace. But unfortunately, it gets a bad rap because too often change is uh, unwanted, unrequested. And all I can say to that is having a mindset that can navigate change uh, and even use adversity to fuel success uh, is a learned and a refined skill, right? Like woodworking or, you know, learning to cook. The thing is, though, if we learn to uh, build a wooden table, at the end of the process, we have a wooden table, something we can touch and feel and show mum and dad what we built. If we learn to cook, we end up with a cake, for example. So we end up with tangible results. When we start to look at you know, our mental uh, state and uh, growing ourselves uh, from a mindset point of view, it's not tangible. It's a really hard thing to track. So that, that leads to all these days where we just feel like we're pedaling uphill, going nowhere. And uh, that's a hard thing to handle, especially in a time of change or crisis, you know, if we just think we're not getting anywhere. So... Uh, I come up with the mindset toolbox, a concept where we take all of life's lessons and we put them into a toolbox and uh, we leave them in a drawer. Uh, these amazing tools that we can use whenever we need them. 
uh, and my three favorite tools ended up becoming that three-step checklist. So it's all about finding systems uh, to put in place when uh, life doesn't go your way, you know, some proven, tried and tested approach uh, to make yourself, as you say, I mean, you've experienced those moments of change when it didn't go your way and you, you didn't love it. And um, life is all about finding ways to uh, remove that fear and worry and bring in some confidence and resilience. I think for me too, it's, it's funny because there's been times where I've experienced change and I did kind of love it, but then I kind of missed the thing that had changed. <laughs> so I don't know. You know what I mean? I don't know if you've experienced that or do I have any of your clients experience that where they're just like, they like where they're at, but then it's just sort of like things are different and you don't really know. I don't know. It's kind of like this weird thing. Like it's like, it's, they're, they're different. You know what I mean? I just, I think that stems to the grass is always greener, you know, mm. and that very simple kind of thought of, you know, we always want what we can't have. It's called delayed happiness in a way. That's one way that I like to look at it. You know, we have a lot of people in the world who say, I'll be happy when, I'll be happy when I get that new PlayStation. I'll be happy mm. when I get that grade at school. And the secret's not in determining when you'll be happy, but what you have right now to be grateful for and, and what makes you happy uh, right this second. Um, you are preaching to the choir when you talk about that though, because I do live in America and I grew up in Australia, you know, and I don't know whether you've ever been to middle Tennessee, but there's a lack of sandy beaches and um, <laughs> you know, there's a lack of good Australian food and there's a lack of all sorts of things that I miss. So, you know, we all have those days where, uh, you know, we, we see the green grass on the other side of the fence. We want to jump back into our comfort zone, but reality is that, you know, without jumping out of that, green grass, you know, jumping that fence and running away without getting out of our comfort zone, without, uh, you know, experiencing change and bring that on. We just sit stagnant and like, that's not what we're here to do. You know, we're here to, you know, evolve and change and grow and, you know, and, and live a wild life for ourselves and do what we can to help other people live their own, you know, really cool existence. So. No, I like that. That's, that's a really good point. Cause I, I feel that myself a lot where I kind of feel like, Oh man, it'd be kind of nice to go back. I don't know, maybe kind of like uh, Frodo and Sam, Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's probably not like the most, the most like evolved uh, reference, but I'm kind of like, oh yeah, there's our times where it's kind of like you'd like to go back and, you know, like you, you have what you want now maybe, or maybe you don't, but you're not as comfortable as you were you were. But yeah, I like that. I, yeah. And I think that maybe we look at other times and remember them to be more comfortable than what they mm. were in that moment. You know, like you tell me one time in your life, you've been 150% content. We're not, we're not wired that way. We always, you know, want the next thing or we always, you know, have dreams and aspirations. I do anyway. Uh, that said, if I could be eight years old again and, you know, have someone feed me and just, you know, <laughs> decide every day what I want to do instead of going to school, just go and play outside or whatever, you know, I'd be pretty content. I say that, but, you know, that's, you know, you never know. No, it's, it's a good point because, you know, I actually writ, wrote an article about this recently where I was thinking about, it's not like, you know, not wasn't like, like a groundbreaking article or anything, but, you know, some of my friends liked it. But uh, it was kind of like about like how a lot of, uh, we had this generation of young, young men now who are in their 20s who are basically kind of opting out of getting real life experiences and opting out of like, you know, careers that are going to push them, opting out of choosing that change to experience this virtual reality in the basement of their parents, you know, like what, what do you think about that? I, you know, at 15 years old, the day that I turned 15, I climbed into an airplane and I flew it on my own for the very first time. So that was the first day I was legally allowed at age 15 to fly an airplane solo. 
that's what started for me this kind of urge to want to do everything at the youngest possible age, you know, which led to the round the world flight. But uh, for me, I was lucky to find a passion, a passion that gave me the highest times in my life, but also provided me the absolute most gut-wrenching lows. At the end of the day, I mean, I'm wired for adventure. Uh, I am not content. I remember one day coming home from hospital, spending a lot of time at home in rehabilitation, very, you know, broken body. I really didn't, I couldn't do a lot. And I remember thinking to myself one day, uh, and at this point I could drive a car. I remember thinking, you know what? When I was young and I planned this round the world flight for two years, I missed out on all these years of just playing PlayStation and mm. sitting like mm. a normal kid eating Doritos on a couch, just smashing some online gaming. And I never did it. So I jumped in my car and I drove to the local gaming shop grinning ear to ear that I was just about to have like my very early quarterly life crisis and buy a PlayStation. So I ended up buying an Xbox or something. I went home and plugged it in and I played it for probably all of that day, most of the next day. And then I just found myself like shaking on the couch. Like I didn't want to be there. I had to go do something, you know, even in my time of recovery, I wanted to go out and experience something else. And you know what? I, the big wide world out there and you know uh there's so much unbelievable adventure and opportunity not to mention what we have in the palm of our hand you know being a say an iphone and the capability of creating something you know building a business earning money um, experiencing the world learning growing all of that is in the palm of our hand yet we send snapchat filters to each other you know laughing because we have dog or you know bunny rabbit ears on uh i think too many people get wound up in that you know virtual reality and you know screen time stuff and i think there's a lot of people our age and you know i'm 26 you know there's a lot of people our okay. age who, we're the same age yeah there we go gnarly <laughs> i've aged <laughs> i've aged really badly um my birthday <laughs> is 26 but my body's about 85 my mind's about 95 but um at 26, you know, there's so many people our age who don't realize, A, the control they have in their life to go and do what they want to do and B, the pure opportunity out there to learn, to pursue whatever your interest is. Like you could want to play harmonica inverted whilst skydiving. You know, there are, there's so many opportunities right now, so much inspiration, uh, so much content that we can lean on to say, hey, he did that, you know, what can we do? So, yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. I like that because it is, it is a really unique time for sure. There's, there's a lot you can do. So I guess, what is it that got you into, into pursuing flying like so young? Like what was, what was it that inspired you? I was actually really, really young. Um, my dad was the milkman, the local milkman. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. So we were like a, just a standard Aussie family. You had it made. <laughs> we were, I man, I, all the free chocolate milk you could want had my <laughs> physical appearance. Um, my mom and dad had these incentive trips pop up in their milkman business. And uh, it was if you bought a certain amount of a, you know, an, a juice product, believe it or not, you would get a free trip overseas with the company. Now, we hadn't been overseas as kids. My mom and dad hadn't been overseas. But I knew that when the, uh, the, the cool rooms, we would call them, uh, stocked up with long-life juice products, my mom and dad had uh, spent a whole lot of money buying a lot of juice in order to get free tickets overseas. And then they would sell all that juice throughout the year to get the money back. 
we ended up going when I was six years old to a, an island in the Pacific Ocean called uh, Vanuatu. And we had to fly there on a Boeing 737. And uh, prior, to, uh, prior to September 11, uh, we were taken up the front, my two brothers and I. I was the youngest, so I was up the back, you know, following the boys. And we went up and um, got to stand in the cockpit and meet the pilots. And from that day on, man, there was nothing else that I wanted to do in life other wow. than be a pilot. And that passion went from six years old all the way through to 14 when I uh, started learning to fly. And then from that point on, it really was something that couldn't be stopped. Every, you know, I just, I, I ate, slept, breathed, uh, everything uh, aviation. And that passion, again, you know, led to some pretty wild adventures, both good and bad. So tell me about this. What was this, uh, this adventure you went on, that, this Guinness World Record adventure? Tell me about this. So it was uh, an attempt, <clears throat> excuse me, an attempt to become the youngest pilot and first teenager in history to fly a single engine airplane solo around the world. So in 2008, the world record was 37. Uh, so it was quite high. Uh, an American man broke it at age 23. I looked at it at 17, quite bad at math, but still smart enough to realize that I had six years before I could, uh, you know, to break this record before it was too late. So I uh, actually went and contacted a very famous Australian man, uh, businessman, entrepreneur, adventurer, around the world pilot, someone uh, my mum and dad knew uh, well, a household name. They'd watched him on TV throughout their whole life. I contacted this gentleman via email and asked him to help me, told him I wanted to fly around the world. Long story short, he uh, told me to find a mentor. So I went and found a mentor uh, who supported me. That was the next guy I contacted. Uh, those two gentlemen jumped on my team. But I'd bitten off more than I could chew because I hadn't told my mum and dad. I hadn't told my brothers. I hadn't told mm. another soul in the world that I wanted to do this. So I had to take an email uh, list, you know, a big folder of emails to my mum and dad from this quite famous gentleman uh, that they knew a lot about and said, oh, hey, I've been chatting to Dick Smith and this is what I want to do. Uh, long story short, that started two years of planning, fundraising that quarter million dollars, uh, bringing together a massive team, convincing a whole lot of people that I was the guy for the job. And at 19 years old, I climbed into a single engine airplane and uh, I set off from Sydney, Australia, uh, just south of Sydney, northeast over the water. Uh, and I started my way across the Pacific Ocean. Uh, what followed was 35 stops uh, in 15 countries and 24,000 nautical miles uh, all the way to the top of the world up near Iceland, uh, Reykjavik, Iceland. Um, a wild adventure, 60,000 foot thunderstorms icing over the North Atlantic, dodging air traffic in Indonesia, uh, dodging all sorts of crazy weather, um, crisis uh, in Egypt, red tape, logistics, all this, uh, all the elements that you would imagine in a good adventure um, <laughs> happened to pop up at even bribery. I mean, it all popped up at one point or another. And uh, it was life-changing. But really when I arrived home, you know, everyone wanted to talk about the record. Oh, you broke a record. I didn't care. You know, I have it hanging on my wall now only because my mum forced me to submit the paperwork. Um, <laughs> I wasn't interested. I, what it was all about was what that flight had actually done and the way that it changed my life and the life of everyone directly involved and the way that it changed the lives of uh, anyone who was touched by the flight whatsoever. Uh, and that was really the push to want to release a book was to say, hey, here's this book called Born to Fly. Um, and it's a way for me to provide all the little facts and details to anyone who wants to listen. And uh, even so, we, we just re-released it in the US as uh, it's on Amazon. 
uh, we re-released it here with all the American spelling, all the S's and our Z's or oh, Z's, you, you want to call them. And um, <laughs> we have a we have a, a way to kind of share the story here as well and take it to speaking events. So, man, it was a wild adventure. It was, um, you know, it was definitely history, uh, and it was an unbelievable learning opportunity uh, for me and everyone involved. So, and you were you were fifteen, right? I was 19. So I was 15 19. when I first flew an airplane on my own. Um, 17, uh, I had a private pilot's license and started my uh, official kind of planning of the flight. It took two years. So I was 19 wow. uh, when wow. I flew around the world. So I just can't imagine that, man. Because like when I was 19, I was just like, I don't know what the, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, just, I don't know how, like, I don't know what gives somebody the, like, the mindset to think I'm going to do something amazing when I'm 19. I was literally just like, man, I don't even want to. I don't even want to work. I don't even know what I want to do. You know what I mean? Oh man, I tell everyone, you know, they, it's so easy to look at famous people or people who have achieved or celebrities or whatever, singers, anyone we look up to who we think has made it, whatever our definition of made it is. It's so easy to look at those people and be like, you know what? You know, like I'm never going to be like them. You know, I can't even make my bed in the morning and they're out (laughs) doing that. Man, I flew around the world at 19 but I still struggle to make my bed. You know, I struggle to eat healthy. That's just one of the things I've always struggled with. You know, like we all have the things that we love and the things we don't. And I think if you can find a passion and pursue a passion, it makes that journey of, you know, whatever you're doing way easier because you want to do it. You know, it's like that uh, subject at school that you really enjoyed as opposed to, for most people, mathematics, you know, (laughs) um, one you wanted to be in, one you didn't. So, yes, I think... I also sometimes look back at that time and wonder what I was thinking and how it, you know, how it all kind of worked out like that. Um, I'm very proud of myself and, and everyone for pulling that off. Um, and all I can do is, you know, use the tools that I learned to go on more adventures, you know, overcome more challenges and, you know, help more people. Um, and if that's what I can do with my life, then it's time well spent. And so when did the, when did the crash happen? It happened just over two years after the end of the round the world flight. So I was uh, just prior to turning 22, I turned down a job uh, in the airlines, uh, my dream job. I turned that down. What was that? Uh, I wanted was that to, dream job? Uh, to fly for Qantas, our Australian airline. Uh, when I was okay. six years old, that's what I decided I wanted to do. I wanted to be oh, okay, a Qantas yeah, when pilot. you met the pilots, yeah. And um, my whole life, I'd wanted that. And off the back of the Round the World flight, and actually off the back of a speaking engagement, I was offered uh, a job with Qantas. And that uh, I turned it down because I wanted to fly old airplanes. I wanted to build experience. I didn't want to become an airline pilot or a bus driver, as you may say, so early on in my life. And we were flying a, a vintage biplane built in the 1930s. It was my job just to, to take one person at a time flying and uh, do some aerobatics, fly up and down the beaches of Australia. Beautiful aeroplane, very nice gentleman in the aeroplane with me who happened to also be a pilot. Uh, we took off out of this short grass airstrip. We uh, had the airstrip disappear beneath the nose. We're climbing out very slowly in this old aeroplane and the engine failed. And um, I pushed the nose down, did absolutely everything I could and within seconds it was all over. And uh, no matter how many times I look back on that, I don't know what else I ever could have done. And uh, the outcome was that I was the only survivor and cut from the wreckage, taken to hospital, shattered head to toe, five breaks in my back and a spinal cord injury. Uh, But the challenge that I embarked on six months in hospital, 
learning to walk again, 18 months in rehabilitation was more of a mental battle than it was physical. And trust me, I had some physical issues and I still do. Um, but it was more of a mental battle than anything. And it really uh, was where the passion for building my own mindset toolbox and helping people navigate change or crisis, adversity, all of those things, that's where that passion was born. And it was born through personally experiencing what it was like and watching other people fail at what I was uh, honestly succeeding at at that point in time. So what did t- walk me through what, what was that like from like a, a, a mental perspective, like going from that high to that low? Was that, was that your lowest point or what, like, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. So what was that like for you? I, it was, you know, a lot of people say that my life seems to run out like a, a Hollywood picture. You know, it starts off as just a medium kind of standard, um, you know, middle-class Australian family. Um, it rises up to an unbelievable high, higher than what most people will experience. Uh, and in a split second moment, it's all taken away and you are dropped to a low, lower than a lot of people experience. Uh, the decision at that low point was to sink or swim. And to swim is to do everything you can to get back to, I mean, it's very self-explanatory, but everything you can do to get back to where you were, if not a place that's better. To sink is suicide. And I'm so blunt with that. And I had a shark attack survivor, Paul de Gelder. He, uh, you see him on Shark Week here all the time. He lost his arm and his leg in a shark attack in Sydney Harbour. He was a Navy clearance diver. He sat down on the day that I left hospital and he said to me, sink or swim. And I looked at that man and I knew that at one point in his life, he literally had to swim. And I chose that. It was the hardest thing I've ever gone through in my life to, I mean, how could it be anything but? And that journey of not necessarily just learning to walk, but finding myself from an identity point of view, finding purpose, I'm still finding that purpose. My purpose now, even though I fly, is uh, I fly for fun now, but uh, I, my purpose is speaking. You know, my purpose is to share my message and my story and have, you know, whether it's you or uh, any of your listeners or anyone that I can go and speak to for work, to have people's eyes open wide and their ears open up and have them learn some of the lessons I had to learn the hard way, but they don't have to experience and go through what I went through. If we can do that and we can help people get through their own times of change, challenge, crisis, and adversity, then, you know, I found my purpose and my job is, um, you know, well done. So, yes, it was it was unbelievably hard that entire time of my life. It still is, to be honest, uh, but it's getting better. What do you mean by what do you mean by it still is? Well, I don't, you know, I don't have any internal systems left in my body. I don't have, I can feel the fronts of my legs. I can't feel any of my feet. The backs of my legs are where I sit. I've had no glute muscles, no calf muscles, barely any strength or movement in my feet. I walk around on my heels all day, every day. Um, You know, my body hurts. I have all the repercussions of all of that kind of damage. Um, I stepped in a campfire one day unknowingly third degree mm-hmm. burns on my feet. You know, I went flying with a rock in my shoe and it ate into my foot both times, two months, two and a half months in the wheelchair just to heal. A whole bunch of things like that just make life harder. I can't run when I want to. I can't jog. I can't move any faster than what I move. It sounds like I'm complaining, but I'm not. Trust me. I'm a glass overflowing person. And 
so unbelievably grateful. I mean, that's that first step of gratitude. So unbelievably grateful of my recovery and where I'm at. But it is still a harder existence getting about physically than it ever was prior to that accident. And um, it always will be, but that's all right. So it's something you're living with like every day. 100%. You see me yeah. walk. I look like I've had too many Tennessee whiskeys, if I'm honest. <laughs> Some <laughs> little moonshine. <laughs> 100%. I'm welcome to the South. <laughs> <laughs> Have you been anywhere else in the, in the States or? Man, I, uh, when I moved to America, it was probably like the 21st or second time I'd ever been to the country. So I came here a lot for work, for flying. Okay. Um, came here in preparation for the round-the-world flight, during the round-the-world flight, and I've been here for fun. So always wanted to live here, always wanted to come and you know, find a, a southern girl with a southern accent and um, <laughs> listen to country music and drink whiskey and eat fried chicken, and all of those things have come true. Um, but... I love it here. I think it's a great country. I think there's a lot of opportunity, but there's a huge audience. Uh, and that is what I am so unbelievably kind of lured in by because I know that my message can do good. And, you know, the more ears we can get it to, uh, the more good we can do. Yeah, no, it's true what you say that there is a huge audience because, you know, it's, it's odd because I think of Americans and I think we're, we're pretty optimistic folk. I think they've even done like studies and they found that, we're more, for example, I don't know how Australians fit into this, but uh, we're more optimistic than our European like counterparts, I guess. Uh, like especially like you know, so we're we're kind of we're kind of optimistic folk, but we do struggle with a lot of hopelessness. Like we do struggle with a lot. I mean, we've had a lot of celebrities like uh, it's just shocking because they kill themselves, right? And they have they seem to have it all, and then they then that one day they're they're like on the you know they're doing their thing, and the next day they're gone. So I don't know. Is that is that like have you noticed that? I find obviously every culture and nationality has a different nature and Australian and again, any more laid back, we'd be lying down, very humorous bunch of people. They love to go to the pub and, and have a drink and, you know, fairly lighthearted, don't take life too serious kind of people. When it comes to say pure American motivational speaking in Australia, it really just doesn't fly. You know, people mm. don't really subscribe to it. Um, whereas America is, to me, a land of entrepreneurialism and opportunity and freedom. And uh, as you say, I mean, what a kind of positive views on life. I mean, if the way that the country's opening up after the crisis that we're in right now, whilst the rest of the world shut, stays shut down, if that's not an indicator of, you know, um, how positive people are that they can kind of overcome whatever, Um I don't know what is, but, you know, I think America is uh, really, it's a very cool place because of that positive vibe of what we can do. So for someone who loves adventure or loves big challenges or loves, you know, whether it's building a business or, you know, creating a YouTube channel or, you know, going on some wild, crazy world first, you know, America is a great country to uh, be in. We're surrounded here by like-minded people and, um, you know, the sky's the limit really. So, but I mean, the mental health challenges that are suffered here in Australia and everywhere else in the world, that's not something, it doesn't matter the color of your skin or the language you speak or where you were born or where you live, what mm. you do for a job, it does not matter. The mental health challenge is uh, universal uh, to the human race. Uh, and that's why I'm so fascinated by mindset, uh, our ability to control it, to grow it, to refine it. Uh, and to manage it um, and to use it to the best of our abilities to create whatever life we have in our head. 
Uh, and it's all different. What you want and I want uh, are not necessarily the same thing. So the mental health challenge is worldwide um, and unbelievably important uh, for all of us to focus on it and do everything we can to stay on top of it. Yeah, no, I like that you say that. That makes sense. It's not like it's not just like an American problem. It's an everybody problem for sure. And uh, I do think though, that, do you find that you are, because I know you mentioned earlier, you're an Aussie living in America. So you, you can, you kind of get the feeling for being happy with what, you, what your life is at, but still sort of feeling, uh, feeling that change. Do you feel like maybe you're, a, you fit in a little better here because you have that sort of entrepreneurial business minded mindset? Did you kind of feel like you, you, you weren't fitting in as well in, in Australia or how does that look? you i think there's more people here so i think if you love uh let's say you like um uh let's say inverted chess playing you know if you come to america <laughs> there's anything you can think of there seems to be a group of people here who do it you know yeah. a group of people that you can fit into kind of a community in a world uh so i think just the sheer size and, and nature of this country allows you know, people with their interests. So especially for me with aviation, there's an amazing aviation world here. I love old cars, you know, and I found an old car in a barn the other day and pulled it out. It was every YouTube dream I've ever had, um, you know, realized. But that's the great thing about this country is accessibility to, you know, adventures and hobbies and people and like-minded individuals and so on and so forth. Um, I think Australia is fantastic and you know if, if you want to pursue surfing and be in the surfing crowd australia is a place to be um you know if you wanted to pursue off-road you know riding and driving and all that stuff then you know go up to utah i, I totally hear you so for you what's what's the next step for you then my goal is to build a keynote speaking business you know to continue all my own little hobbies and lives and build a house and do all those things that adults should do um but my goal and my passion is life is to help as many individuals and organizations as I can uh, work through change, you know, build their own mindset toolbox, win life uh, above the shoulders. So uh, that's what I'm here to do. And I'm so unbelievably passionate about it. any organization that we can help any association, school group, college group. Uh, you know, we're here to help. We're here to uh, tailor content. Uh, we're here to talk about your problems and the challenges you're facing and see how, uh, we can uh, help you navigate them, jump on top of them and, uh, you know, keep on moving.